God's Word. We're continuing on in the book of Acts, and this morning we'll look at Acts chapter 13, verses 13 to 43. We're talking about the first missionary journey. Acts 13, beginning at verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch of Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the Law and the Prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had been removed, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought about to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. Before His coming, John had proclaimed the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not He. But behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, son of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent this message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize Him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. And though they found in Him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of Him, they took Him down from the tree and laid Him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers, that he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that this man, or excuse me, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is free from everything 
from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, and be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your day, a work that you will not believe it, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank You for this great message of salvation that has been proclaimed for some 2,000 years now. Father, may we see it clearly this morning. May it not be the voice of man, but may we hear Your voice speaking to us through Your Word. May we be convicted. May we be built up. May we be strengthened in our faith so that we can leave here this morning in the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Amen. May be seated. I was attending a conference a number of years ago and John MacArthur was one of the speakers and he said that every so often he's invited to speak on Larry King Live. And he said, regardless of the topic, he said, I always have two things that I want to say. Number one, I always want to say that the Bible is God's Word and I want to say that salvation is found only through faith in Jesus Christ. He said, it doesn't matter what the topic is. It doesn't matter why they invited me that day. Those are the two things that I want to say. I don't want to interject somewhere in the program. A couple of weeks ago, I did a funeral for my aunt. And the message that I delivered was on John 11. And basically, as I was praying about the message the night before, I kept thinking there's two things I want to make very clear, Lord. I want them to see that resurrection is found only in Jesus Christ. That He is like no other Savior. And I want them to see that they can have the hope of resurrection. They can have the hope of eternal life by believing in Him. And I wanted them to really hear Jesus' words in John 11.25 where He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, even though He die, yet shall he live. That's all I wanted to get across. I wanted for that message to be ringing in their ears and I was praying that God would use it. Whenever the Apostle Paul had an opportunity to speak to unbelievers, especially if they were Jewish, um, his objectives were pretty clear and they were pretty simple and pretty basic and straightforward. Uh, He wanted to expound the Scriptures, which meant the Old Testament. He wanted to demonstrate that the promises were fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and he wanted to challenge the people to respond to the message of Christ. And he wanted them to respond through repentance and belief in Christ. That was basically his objective. He might come at it from different angles. He might come at it from different Scriptures. But that's what he was trying to communicate. Everything that you see in the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And if you will repent of your sin, if you will put your faith in Him, He will save you. He will set you free. That's what He was trying to communicate. And on this occasion, in Antioch of Pisidia, it was no different. 
So let's look at our text and this great sermon. The context is set up in verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, that was on the island of Cyprus that we looked at last week, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And then we're told, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now, Luke, when he writes this, he's pretty ambiguous. He doesn't fill in many details. He just mentions that uh, John Mark uh, left them, returned to Jerusalem. But we know from Acts 15 that from Paul's perspective, at least, this was a desertion. Uh, John Mark is bailing out of them. We're not told why specifically. Uh, Maybe ministry was too tough. Maybe the opposition was too much. Uh, Maybe he didn't like the fact that uh, Paul was now the lead spokesman and not his cousin Barnabas. Uh, But for whatever reason, John Mark returns to Jerusalem And we know from Acts 15.38 and following uh, that Paul doesn't trust John Mark anymore because they're going on another journey and Paul and Barnabas uh, have an argument over John Mark. Barnabas wants to take him. And of course, if you know Barnabas, he's a very encouraging guy. Barnabas means son of encouragement. And John Mark was his cousin. He was family. So he wanted to bring his cousin along. He probably said, let's give him another chance. And Paul said, basically, I need somebody that I can count on. No way. And they went their separate ways. Uh, Barnabas took John Mark with him. Uh, Paul went in another direction. Uh, But there is a good ending to the story. Uh, There really is a beautiful ending of redemption. Because in Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy, and in the last chapter uh, 4, verse 11, he says, bring John Mark. Because he's useful to me. And it's a great reminder that even though uh, John Mark fell short and didn't persevere when he needed to, in the end, God brought him back and he was even restored to Paul and, and Paul couldn't wait for John Mark to come and visit him in prison. And John Mark, in case you have forgotten, is the author of the second gospel that bears his name. But at any rate, at this point, he defects. uh, But ministry continues on, verse 14. uh, But they went from Perga and came to Antioch of Pisidia. This is a different Antioch than the one they originated from. (laughs) This is farther off to the east. There are many Antiochs. just like there's an Antioch, Illinois, and Antioch all over the place, I guess. Uh, This was a different Antioch, and this was another opportunity to preach the gospel in a place that they hadn't preached the gospel yet, Uh, a place where the gospel had probably not yet penetrated. After the reading from the law in the synagogue that they went to, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Now, I imagine Paul sitting there, and when this invitation was given to him, how do you think he responded? Have I got a message for you? (laughs) Thank you for the invitation. Now, as you know, this was common practice. Uh, Jesus would enter the synagogue, and you'll recall on one occasion he read from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me with good news to preach to the poor. And then he gave the explanation, the Scripture fulfilled, in your hearing. 
Um, so that was very common practice in a synagogue. The, the word would be read and then someone, even traveling speakers, could come in and give an explanation. That's what's happening on this occasion. Paul comes, and perhaps they knew Paul. He was a very famous disciple, actually, because he was discipled under Gamaliel, who was well-known. Uh, perhaps they, they knew that, and they said, we, we would like to hear from you. And Paul, as I said, is more than happy to give them a message. So verse 16, Paul stands up, he motions with his hand, and he says, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. So the first thing he says is, God chose our fathers. He chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was his sovereign choice. He called them. And then what he does is he just briefly and quickly just goes through the history of Israel. And then after choosing the fathers, he says, He made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, um, where they were in exile for some 400 years. Now, when I read, He made the people great, I, I paused for a moment and I thought, how did he make the people great? Um, other translations say he made the people prosper. Uh, other translations say he exalted the people. So here's the question I have for you. And this, this could be an entire message, but how exactly, specifically, did God make the people great when they were in Egypt? Anybody want to tell me? What's that? Many numbers which came about through childbirth. Exodus 1.4 But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So they were still abiding by the command, be fruitful and multiply, which has never been rescinded. And because of that, they were filling the land with their children so that the children became an army and they were strong and they were mighty. Is there an application for us today? There is an application. And again, this could be an entire message. If we were to look at France, for example, uh, the child rate is 1.8 children per couple. Among Muslims in France, it's 8.1. One. 1.8, 8.1. Which explains why southern France has more mosques today than it does churches. This is powerful and the Muslims understand this. Let me give you a quote from Muammar al-Gaddafi. thought you'd never hear a quote from Gaddafi in church, did you? This is what he said. There are signs that Allah will grant victory to Islam and Europe without swords, without guns, without conquest. We don't need terrorists. We don't need homicide bombers. 
the 50 plus million Muslims in Europe will turn it into a Muslim continent within a few decades. What are the Muslims doing? They're having huge families and they are taking over. We should learn. God said long time ago, be fruitful and multiply. And we have examples of Scripture when God's people do that. They fill the land. We could do the same in America. Well, let's quickly move on. Turning to Acts 13. So God makes them great. And then with uplifted arm, He leads them out. And for about 40 years, He put up with them in the wilderness. <laughs> That's a good way to describe it. He put up with them, right? They grumbled and they complained at every turn. Right? Manna, manna, manna. That's all we're given. We would like some meat. And God says, you want meat? I'll give you meat until it's coming out of your nostrils. So He sent quail and it was literally up to their knees. But they were complaining and God put up with them. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. Luke is just giving some round numbers. About 400 years in exile, 40 years in the wilderness, wandering around doing figure eights, and then 10 years conquering the land until they finally take possession of the land. And then Paul continues on with this historical survey of their history. After that, he gave them judges. Uh, Gideon, Samson, Deborah, and others who would deliver the Israelites from their enemies. And then he says, um, they were given Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And this is quite a low point in Israel's history. I'd like you to turn back to first. Samuel 8, if you would. First Samuel 8. Now let me ask you this question before we read while you're turning there. Did the Israelites have a king at this time? No. Yes. Wow, we're divided here. Should we duke it out? <laughs> Maybe you're both right. No, they didn't have a human king like the other nations did, but yes, they had a king. And their king was? God was their king, exactly. That wasn't good enough. They weren't satisfied with God as their king. They want to be like all the other nations. So they asked Samuel for a king. Samuel is greatly grieved about all this. And then we read in 1 Samuel 8, beginning of verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He's warning them. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifty and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take, notice this, 
the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. You know what this king's going to do? He's going to take a tenth of your grain, tenth of your flocks. You're going to be taxed like never before. You never dreamed of 10% tax. But that's what he's going to do because he's going to be tyrannical. Are you sure you want a tenth of all you have confiscated by the king? Be careful. 10%. Some of us are dreaming of 10%. Boy, that'd be a utopia. But they were warned. Verse 19, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. No, give us the big government so that we can look to them. Now, that's not a political statement. That's a religious statement, but it does contain a warning. Be careful to look to the government, to look to the king, the president, centers, whatever uh, religious or, excuse me, political leaders we may have when you should be looking to God. They should have been looking to God. They should have been satisfied with God. They should have been trusting God. But they wanted something more tangible. They wanted something what they thought was closer at hand. And God gave them what they wanted. But they didn't want what they got in the end. So this is quite a low point in Israel's history. He gives them Saul and Saul is the first king and he rules over the people. And then in verse 22, Paul goes on and he says, And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. David was a good man. David was a good king. And then he said, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior Jesus as He promised. Now, whenever you read in the Bible as He promised or According to promise, you have to ask the question, what promise? Where did God promise that? Paul is talking about God's promise. Does anybody know what the name of this promise is called? It's got a technical term. No, it's called, let me give you the big fancy term, it's called the Davidic Covenant. The covenant that He made with David or very simply, the promise that he made to David, which is found in 2 Samuel 7. So turn there, if you will. 2 Samuel 7. And this is important. We want to understand this. 
Because Paul is talking to Jews and they understood this covenant. Believe me, they understood it. They understood it from the time they were in first grade at least. This was very basic to their religion. Very profound. Second Samuel 7, beginning at verse 1. Now when the king, and this is talking about David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. And what a beautiful house it was. It was a palace. He says, So I dwell in this house of cedar. I dwell in this palace. But the ark of God, which represented the home of God, which represented the throne of God, dwells in a tent. Now, it was a nice tent. It was a glorious tent. But it was a tent. So, you can see David? Look what I'm living in. Plush, cedar, house, and God gets a tent. Something's wrong here. Nathan, this, this isn't right. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Turn ahead. Nathan comes before the Lord and the Lord gives him a message and basically says, nope, David isn't going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for David. This is what we read in verse 12. Nathan repeating the words of the Lord, your days, or excuse me, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, Solomon, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So, no, David, you can't build a house for me. You're a man of blood. But your son Solomon will. And, of course, Solomon did build the first temple for the Lord. And that's what God says. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Mark that word forever. We're going to come back to it in a minute. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. So remember, Saul was raised up as the first king, but the spirit left Saul. The dynasty did not continue on through the line of Saul. He interjected David to be the next king. And he's saying to David, your line will continue on forever. Your throne shall be established forever. That's very important to keep in mind that word forever. So, David's king, Solomon's king, and then the kingdom of David continues on in his line for 400 plus years. That is quite a dynasty, is it not? In fact, the greatest family dynasty in the history of the world. For 400 years, one king after another coming from the line of David is king until Zedekiah. Zedekiah is the last king. 
Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, took the Israelites captive. He took them into exile. He killed Zedekiah's two sons. And then he gouged out the eyes of Zedekiah. And yes, the Bible is very graphic, especially when it's put into a movie. And Zedekiah died in exile in 586 B.C. as the last king in the line of David. Move the clock ahead uh, 500 plus years, almost 600 years to the first century A.D. And the Israelites are asking themselves, what happened to the Davidic covenant? What, what happened to that promise that God made to David where he said one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne forever. What, what happened to that? What is God going to do? And Paul is telling the Israelites this is what God is going to do. And this explains why Paul in this sermon can jump right from David to Jesus. He's showing the connection because Jesus is the answer to the Davidic covenant. And that's why he says he raised up David. He was pleased with David because he was a man after God's own heart. He carried out the will of God. And because he was so impressed with David, he made this promise to David that one of your descendants will sit on the throne forever. And forever wasn't just poetic language. It wasn't just saying for a long time. Forever. Forever was to be interpreted literally. Literally, forever, till the end of time. And what has happened to that promise? It is fulfilled in Jesus. Now, that's important. When you turn to Matthew 1.1, I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. When you turn to Matthew 1.1, the very first book of the New Testament... Very first verse, we read the book, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. And right away should kick in the promises made to Abraham that he would bless all the families of the earth through him. And then right away should kick in not just the Abrahamic covenant, but the Davidic covenant and the promise made to David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne Forever, And Jesus Christ is of that lineage, which means He qualifies. And as will be pointed out in the Gospel, not only does He qualify as the King, but He fulfills all the requirements of the King. And He will indeed sit on that throne forever. Now, it's interesting that Paul mentions his preparation by John. He says, before His coming... John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. Who's he referring to? I am not he. I am not the Messiah. And that's from John 1.20. Because the people were asking, Who are you? The people respected John the Baptist so much that many people thought, I wonder if he's the promised Messiah. And, and John the Baptist said, whoa, whoa, no. I, I, I am, hear me loud and clear, 
I am not He. I am not the Christ. I am not the promised Messiah. And then He went on and He said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not He. No. But behold, after Me, one is coming. So he's making it very clear. I'm preparing the way for Him. After Me is one is coming. Right behind Me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. I'm just preparing the way for him. And this is very important because not only were the Jews of the first century waiting for the promised Messiah, not only were they waiting for God to fulfill the Davidic covenant, but they also still believed that Elijah would prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And Jesus told His disciples very clearly that John the Baptist is the Elijah that was promised. So that's the connection. John the Baptist comes fulfilling the promise of Elijah coming and then the Messiah comes right behind him. And then he says, now he's getting to his exhortation, 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. To us, it's been given the message that God promised in the past has been given. This message of salvation, which He will define a little later very clearly as forgiveness of sins in Christ, doing what the law could never do. 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him, talking about Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. In other words, they should have understood them. They're read every Sabbath. Instead of understanding them, they fulfilled them by condemning Him. Quite a powerful statement. They actually fulfilled Scripture by condemning Him just as the Bible said He would be condemned by His own people. And though they found no guilt worthy of death, they put an innocent man to death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Now, notice very carefully, Paul talks about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. By God's sovereignty, he says this is what God intended all along. And we know that because it was written in the pages of Scripture. Yet, they are still responsible. He is an innocent man. They put him to death. And they are responsible for that. But, God raised him from the dead. And if you'll recall in Acts 2, there was a big emphasis on the resurrection of Christ. Because if He's still dead, then He can't possibly be the one who's going to sit on David's throne forever. To do that, you have to be alive. So Paul is really going to harp on this point in his message, if you will. As though he's saying, now listen to me, God raised Him from the dead. I want you to understand this very clearly. And if you'll remember our Easter message, we should all believe in the resurrection of Christ. Why? Do you remember what we said? We should believe in the resurrection of Christ because it's written in the pages of Scripture. It's 
written in the pages of Scripture. You're all reminding me of the, the importance of repeating myself. <laughs> but God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee and Jerusalem, who are now witnesses to the people. So God raised him from the dead. He appeared to many people, more than 500. At the same time, they are witnesses. And we bring you the good news of what God promised to his fathers. And this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus from the dead, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. We won't turn there, but that's a reference to the resurrection. And then verse 34. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings to David. And that's a quote from Isaiah 55. And he, Because God raised Jesus from the dead, because He's from the line of David, all the promises given to David can be given to Jesus because God raised Him from the dead. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you see what Paul is doing here? He's saying God raised Him from the dead. You should believe this because it's found in Scripture here. Because it's found in Scripture here. And because it's found in Scripture here. In other words, you should believe in it because it's found everywhere in the Scriptures if you would just open it up and read it. And then he says, Psalm 16, which is written by David, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. That's Psalm 16. It's a Psalm of David. And many believe that David was talking about himself in that Psalm. And he was talking about himself. But... He was also prophesying about Christ. And the better application is made to Christ and Paul's going to prove it. He says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, in other words, he died, and was laid with the fathers and saw corruption. Okay, I know this is a little morbid, but Paul's making it very clear. Okay, David said that the Holy One would not see corruption. The Holy One cannot be a reference to David because remember what happened to David? David died just like the other kings. He, he was buried and what happened to his body? It saw corruption. It disintegrated like everybody does when it's laid in the ground. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. The body of Jesus did not see corruption because it was only in the tomb for three days. It wasn't there long enough. Therefore, David is referring to one of his descendants and that descendant must be Jesus. And we can be assured of that because God raised him from the dead so that his body would not see corruption. And they need to believe it. Not because Paul saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. They need to believe it because it's written in the pages of their Bible. It's right there in Psalm 16. Therefore, he can fulfill all the promises. And then after giving scriptural evidence, proving it with very simple interpretation that everyone can understand, even the children in this room can understand, he says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. 
Now He can make it very clear. If you want to be forgiven, turn to Him. He's the promised Messiah. And we have to remember, this is just a brief outline of the message that the people needed. Further explanation, I'm sure He said, now turn to Isaiah 53. Remember what the prophet said, that the sin of the people would be placed upon Him. They were placed upon Jesus. God raised them up. He is the atonement for our sins. A great word. We've been studying that at home in our catechism questions. Atonement. Jesus lived a perfect life and the sufferings and deaths that we deserved came upon Christ because He took our place. So He makes it very clear. Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you by Him. Everyone who believes. That's all you have to do. Everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. And, and maybe at this point, uh, Paul explained like we've been seeing in our memory verses from Galatians. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by law. Why? Because no one can keep the law. What comes through the law? The curse. Because you don't abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. For it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And maybe at this point, Paul was telling the Jews, remember what was said in the Old Testament? If you disobey the law, a curse comes upon you. The righteous shall live by faith. It's always been by faith. And if you will believe in Jesus, you will be forgiven. And He took upon Himself our curse so that he could, we could be forgiven. And He tried to make that very clear to the people that it was found right there in the Old Testament. New Testament basically is just a commentary on the Old Testament. Showing how it's all fulfilled in Christ. That's the end of his sermon. Believe in Jesus. There's nothing you can do. And of course, he's talking to Jews, so he's saying, certainly do not be deceived into thinking that you can be forgiven by obeying the whole law. You can't do it. If you break just one command, you're guilty of all of it. The curse of God, not the blessing of God, the curse of God rests upon you. But if you'll put your faith in Jesus Christ, God will lift the curse. He will bring down the blessing. He will forgive you of all your sins. And He will free you from the condemnation if you just believe. If you will just look to Him, God will transform your life. And then he gives them a warning. Verse 40. Beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe it, even if one tells it to you. Don't be like the scoffers. Don't let that Scripture be fulfilled on you. Because you think this work is so great. God does great works. Don't disbelieve because it's too good to be true. It is true. It fulfills everything that God had said. Examine the Scriptures. So He challenges them to put their faith in Christ. And then He warns them, do not be like a scoffer. You'll be in trouble. And then we're told, as they went out, the people begged. I love that. Any preacher loves to hear that after a message. <laughs> and they begged that these things should be told them the next Sabbath. 
Come back next week. <laughs> we want to hear more of this. This is good. Come, come back next week. Will you, will you do that? Yeah, we'll, we'll come back next week. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So the response is good. It seems the Spirit of God has been moving. Uh, the people are interested. You, you know they're interested when they invite you back. <laughs> they're interested. And then next week, when you come back, and thank you, I'll be happy to come back. <laughs> next week, Lord willing, uh, we'll see what happens on the next Sabbath uh, when Paul had another message for the people. Let's close the prayer.